went out for a walk in the very first time in the main square in Lisbon. Uh, and within about 10 seconds, someone walked up to, to me. I don't know why me. Maybe I'm a particularly dodgy looking bloke. Uh, and and I kid you not, in in the best Essex accent that I've I've ever heard, you know. Oh, do you do you like um, do you like Nando's? I'm like I, I, I do. And he's like, oh, okay, great. Um, do, do you like do you like cannabis or, or heroin? <laughs> um, <laughs> that is a strong. Why not all three? <laughs> but um, but it was just amazing at how how kind of brazen this was in the middle of the day, uh, and, and he, he just you know was offering us. I'm like, I'm okay for cannabis and heroin, but I would like some very yeah, yeah. chicken. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Daniel Pryor, and I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and our director of strategy, John McDonald, and Paul North, director of VoltFast, an advocacy organisation that seeks to reduce the harm drugs pose to individuals and society. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the recent moves towards a cannabis diversion scheme in London, the government's overall drug strategy announced in December, as well as the international landscape for drug law reform. First up, this week, news was leaked about Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan's plans to set up a cannabis diversion trial scheme involving three London boroughs. Under the plans, although drugs would remain illegal and that the mayor doesn't have the power to actually change the law, officers would not prosecute under 25s caught in possession of small amounts of cannabis, and they would instead be offered expert support and advice. Uh, And although this scheme came under some criticism in various media outlets, uh, there's some very good and compelling reasons, I feel, uh, I think Paul may agree with me here, uh, for supporting this cannabis diversion scheme trial. So I guess just to to start off and and go to you, Paul, obviously you had some involvement, or VoltFast at least had some involvement in looking into this scheme, which is still, I understand, in the kind of planning and proposal stage. You maybe bring the listeners up to date on what exactly it would involve since I gave quite a brief overview there. Yeah, sure, Dan. No worries at all, and thanks for having me on. So basically, we've been chatting to a borough in Lewisham for some time about how they can better protect their young people under 25s from criminalisation due to possession of drugs. So you see lots of things going up and down the country with this, and there's certainly a growing debate and recognition that the criminalisation of young people and adults, but this was a focus on young people, the criminalisation for substances, possession of substances is is bad. It lead, I saw it first time when I worked in drug treatment. It uh, hinders people's career opportunities. It can put them into cycles and lives of crime, which is just not good. And evidence and realisation of that is increasing. So we were working with a London borough to make a series of recommendations and implement a scheme on how that borough can basically improve their drug policy. Unfortunately, it was leaked to the press prior to that being announced, which is frustrating, as I'm sure you can appreciate how frustrating those things um, can be. But basically, it was leaked by the Telegraph that this was a piece of work that was going on. And in fact, that there wasn't just one borough that they were looking at implementing a scheme like this. There were three. Although I can't go into great detail about the scheme, because technically it's not been released yet. We've written a report. We've got the recommendations. They're good to go. But Sadiq Khan, over the past couple of days, has come out and said quite a bit about this scheme and what it would entail. So basically... It would be, and what I find amusing about this, and I'm sure you have similar views, the way in which the media reporting this was pretty mm. wild. Yeah, you had tweets from Lad Bible on their Instagram and, and Twitter, kind of saying, you know, Sadiq Khan has decriminalised drugs in London. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Time Out London ran a story today that said Sadiq.
Pete Khan has decriminalised possession of ketamine, cannabis and amphetamine in London. Completely false. Com- completely inaccurate. And I think even the Telegraph article, the headline mentioned decriminalisation, didn't it? It was like Sadiq Khan to decriminalise yeah. drugs. Independent too as well. Yeah, which is deeply frustrating because as a kind of broader point, this is one of the challenges we have when talking about this issue of engaging politicians on drug policy. There is an inherent fear of talking about drug policy because there is a perception that society will have a strong backlash against, you know, mm-hmm. quite significant or concerning reform. So the, the frustration on our end is when something like this does happen and is leaked, if the press run it as something that's quite far from the reality of the policy, it, it's frustrating because it stresses out politicians and makes them even more hesitant. But to get to the heart of it, the scheme is basically for under 25s. It would be in three boroughs in London. When they are caught in possession of small amounts of cannabis, then they are put on a diversionary program in which they are given an opportunity to see someone from a drug treatment service or a counselling service, kind of like a wraparound social support service, rather than a criminal intervention. Now, the key thing is it wouldn't leave a criminal footprint, what we call a criminal footprint. So for some diversion schemes and some, some, I guess, any kind of caution or arrest, you get a criminal footprint, i.e. your record, it will state that you were arrested and cautioned for possession of a substance. This scheme would not involve that. So if an individual under the age of 25 was caught in possession of cannabis, there is some discussion about other drugs, but I can't go into the detail of them. They've not been released, but certainly for cannabis, then there will not be a criminal footprint and there will be an opportunity to get some support and help. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm obviously, unsurprisingly, and the ASI as well are, are fans of this. Um, I think it's a fantastic idea. And I think, But before we get into the kind of benefits, uh, as well as some of the criticism of the actual idea, I think it's worth drilling down into this political reaction a little bit more and, and the media reaction because the, the thing that really stood out for me um, and I see this I see similar stuff happening in the field of e-cigarettes and vaping as well uh, the lad bible being a serial offender here where they, <laughs> they they tend to report on one specific study that's a very poor methodology and usually done on on mice or rats and say e-cigarettes give you cancer and they're just as bad as cigarettes etc so so it's not just um, cannabis you're not special Paul I'm afraid uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, <what>? I <laughs> jest um, but it seems like this kind of instinctive hostility from politicians, any sort of uh, drug policy reform story, it was really translated into the problems for both Downing Street as well as Keir Starmer, which which kind of disappointed me. You saw pretty hostile statements, not necessarily saying that the scheme itself was was bad, but certainly just generic anti-drug responses from yeah. um, from both major parties. And going to you, John, on this, what's your sense of the actual kind of levels of support for drug policy reform when it comes to both major parties? And, and do you think that actually, especially when it comes to something as kind of trial scheme in three London boroughs that doesn't change the law, do you think that there might be more of a chance for some, some popular support in the, the parties for something like this? Well, it's it's a difficult one. I mean, I think there's there's popular support among the British public, as far as I can tell, uh, for some of these measures. But there is a contrast between that and both the parties seeming to kind of wanting to capitalize on this tough on crime stance, right? I mean, we see Boris kind of like literally LARPing as a police officer, right? He puts on the jacket and the beanie. And he goes out and we see all those sort of photo shoots looking like a in the line of duty or whatever it's called with Pri Patel looking very serious by by drug busts and so on. So I think there are there are some good people, you know, on, on both sides of the, of the commons on this debate. But I don't think the leadership 
in either of the main political parties really feels like being pro-drug reform is, is really a viable political strategy at this time, which is a great shame. It's, it's really frustrating, isn't it? Because I, I, just to jump in on the back of this, one of the things I've felt for a while now, the major challenges we've had, I've, I've been working in the, the sort of lobbying space for Voltfast yeah. for five years, and you sort of touch on the major issue is you'll sit down in front of a politician they will engage positively on the subject because they recognize it's sensible you're not coming yep. to them with anything even if you're talking about legalization of cannabis it's really not it's no longer a crazy idea it's totally practical policy wise mm. it's feasible so it makes sense evidence wise it's strong they go that's great but i can't talk about this because i'm concerned about backlash and it's not one of my top five issues they always say that it's not one of yeah. my top five issues yep. I like it, but it's not one of my top five. I'm not going to put it on my top five because I don't want to take the risk. And that is that is that is a frustrating position to be in. I've, I've thought for a long time now that we need to look at ways of changing the law without great political involvement and engagement. And instead, for you know, okay, look, we, we might have to just pause some of that work on politicians and look at other avenues that can be pushed, like schemes like this, right? Yeah. This is drug reform. This is drug policy reform. Yeah, okay, you make a, you make a good point, Dan, that it's not actually changing the law, but optically it is doing something. It, optically for society, it's, it, it looks like a difference. And it's reducing in a reduction in criminalization of young people, which is, you know, which is which we can only celebrate, we can only see as, see as a positive. I suppose, as our, uh, as our president, Matt Sudpiri, would say it's a it's a salami slice operation right like it's it's the sort of path towards drug reform would be one of of many many increments as opposed to one sweeping reform yeah i, th- I think that's definitely true for for the british situation more so than it is for, for various other countries and we'll get on to kind of international reform a little bit later in the podcast but i tend to agree i started out in this space um a, a fresh bright young thing super excited to legalize cannabis and MDMA uh, within two years of working on this issue. Uh, and of course, then realized, you know, reality, now look at you. <laughs> reality, well, now look at me, exactly. Uh, they destroyed, you're any, haggard. <laughs> I don't know if we're releasing any video clips of this podcast. But... <laughs> Shirtless, I can't believe it. <laughs> Pipe down, you. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. But, but yeah, it, it, it's something that increasingly I've come to the realization that it's likely that we're going to, move towards reform through these kind of piecemeal, uh, often local or, or county level changes. Uh, and that's what we've seen in terms of previous diversion schemes. This is the thing that, coming back to the politics of it, that, that really frustrated me, pointed out, I think, by um, Professor Alex Stevens on Twitter a couple of days ago, that what you have is the government in their drug strategy um, supporting diversion schemes very similar to this one. You had Kiss Dharma and the Labour Party openly and publicly supporting these diversion schemes because they've been in place for several years, because they've been very successful. Uh, and the ones that are already in place in the UK definitely apply to more than just cannabis as well. This was, you know, the, the kind of sensationalism around this story, even though cannabis, as you mentioned, Paul, was the only drug confirmed uh, to be part of this. Yeah, the, the Thames Valley Police, um, you've got Durham um, Constabulary as well, many other areas in the UK that have been trialling these diversion schemes Uh, finding great success for them in terms of various outcomes for for quite some time. Uh, And yet, because it's London and because it's making the papers, suddenly everyone's getting a little bit jittery and and they have to rush to say, you know, but of course, you know, we hate, we hate drugs. Uh, We hate drugs more than that guy. We thought was hating drugs. (laughs) So it's a very frustrating situation there uh, and clearly just speaks to the kind of empty rhetoric that goes on in drug policy reform and has done for quite some time. But I guess getting into some of the, the, the actual evidence behind this and maybe some of, of people's concerns that have been expressed for, for diversion schemes like this one, what what are the major metrics of success that we'd be looking for? Well, I mean, so I, I was involved in diversion schemes when I worked as a 
manager of treatment services up north. And, and really what you would warrant success as is someone engaging with a diversion scheme. And if there was an identification of problematic use, then subsequently engaging in a treatment service, sorting that out and being discharged. That would be one win. Another win would be someone engaging and going, look, do you know what? I got caught with a small amount of, of cannabis. I don't use it that often, but at least I've come here and you've told me some facts that I didn't know previously. So I'm better educated. I'll be a bit smarter on this. Thanks for thanks for the information. A harm reduction intervention and they leave. And them not then getting back into a cycle of crime and just being arrested and offended again. So they're the kind of key outcomes that you're looking for. Support, supported engagement in a service harm reduction education to reduce their their you know any harm that they might be associated with them using the drug and just them not offending again now what we know from diversion schemes is that they are successful you know there's really good stats really good evidence on them and what you have to emphasize when you talk to the public about diversion schemes is this isn't the only way that the police can deal with possession of drugs if you've got enough drugs to warrant a possession with intent to supply charge that will still be charged it's not like you can get away with dealing drugs all of a sudden there's still a criminal punitive intervention if someone's clearly dealing drugs and if someone says oh do you know what i'm not going to any session you can get lost they will still be charged with possession of the substance it's not a you know oh we just don't really care about this issue anymore there is that you know it's still punitive you still have to go to this appointment and if you don't go then you will be charged with the offense so it's not just a it's, it's not just an opt-out but there is really good uh, stats on them up and down the country as you mentioned down they've been adopted by a number of constabularies and pe- there, there are several police and crime commissioners who have particularly supportive of diversion schemes and my my personal experience of managing them and seeing them and and appreciate here we're just talking about kind of under 25s cannabis but if we zoom out and speak more broadly about diversion schemes as a concept they're normally targeted at class a heroin crack users i.e the group that are just persistently caught in possession because they use it around the clock and they just get charge after charge after charge and and are locked up you know consistently it's very very good with those groups because it just stops that cycle of offending and, and and just says look go back to the treatment service go back to the treatment service so there's really really good evidence at that more acute end of the spectrum this scheme was an attempt to just recognize that people from BAME communities in several boroughs in London if not London as a whole to be honest are vastly overrepresented in the criminal justice system and vastly overrepresented in terms of the number of arrests and police interventions so this scheme really zoned in on that how can we better protect young people from BAME communities from further criminalization um, and, and that's that makes this scheme fairly unique you know a lot of diversion schemes as i said you know focus on the heroin cohort and and crack cohort and and for all age ranges i I think another thing that um that really appeals to me obviously you mentioned the kind of stopping this this cycle of crime from taking place and the same is true when it comes to not ruining people's lives with criminal records because and this is something i think that isn't always acknowledged that just just having a criminal record especially uh if you're a young person um under 25 for example they they can completely ruin lives they can you know massively hurt your employment prospects especially in certain areas uh can hinder your education opportunities it puts up a lot of barriers to being able to travel for for work or for pleasure and actually makes it hard to secure things like housing as well so it's not just the story that you hear of a short spell in prison you get out of prison and actually that's worse for you in terms of reoffending rates the same can happen from criminal records you know if you can't get a job um then, then you're like or more likely to, to fall into say a cycle of uh, more problem drug use but the other thing i think and this is something that you know intuitively makes sense to to someone maybe coming at this issue for the first time is that with any diversion scheme, especially ones that focus uh, have a, have a broader focus, I think, than just cannabis, you free up a lot of police time. Um, there's 
an amazing amount uh, of police hours and court hours that are, in my opinion, completely wasted on dealing with the, the sort of lower level cannabis possession offences that this scheme seeks to tackle. Uh, and, you know, we, we often hear about how police are, are overworked and there's, there's not enough police on the streets and that they're not perhaps using their time as effectively. And this is, I think, quite a good way of making sure that police time is used more effectively and that police resources also are, are used more effectively. But I think just to, to finish up on the benefits, Paul, you mentioned the, the racialized enforcement aspect of, um, of cannabis law enforcement in London specifically. And I know that as part of the work that's been done on this potential scheme, uh, you looked at, at stop and search rates for um, some of these London boroughs. And I'd be very good if you could kind of enlighten listeners as to what the findings were there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the stats off the top of my head to roll out. I know you kind of mentioned them in in the borough that we looked at. Nine in ten drug proceedings brought against young people in Lewisham were for cannabis possession, and young black men in southeast London were two point four times more likely to be stopped and searched for drugs. I mean, a really good organisation to check out on this is Release. Mm, Release have yeah. done lots of research, really interesting research on that disproportionality, and I encourage people to go check out the website Release.org or check out the Twitter and check out the the tweets and work of, of Neve Eastwood. But w- what we can say safely in London and certainly up and down the country is that. Uh, young black men in particular are vastly overrepresented in that in the uh, criminal justice system and criminalization for possession of drugs that subject in itself is almost needs need, needs a podcast because i you know my yeah. background's in criminology i've done degree in criminology and although I, this is a serious issue i sometimes think there's quite a lot of laziness when discussing discussing this issue and we, we should be careful to not fall into the trap of just putting this down to kind of like institutional racism oh that's because mm-hmm. the police are racist there are certainly elements of institutional racism we should take that very seriously and we should certainly discuss and debate that and engage with it but we should also recognize that a lot of this for me is about deprivation a lot of this is about life opportunities and family support and deprivation it isn't as simple as the as the color of someone's skin it's much more complicated than that because you know i worked in the north of england in areas that were mainly white working class and there was an overrepresentation of young white men well, not an overrepresentation, but there, you know, there was certainly, well, there was an overrepresentation of young white men from working class backgrounds right. versus middle class backgrounds, and this wasn't an issue of the color of the skin. It was an issue of life opportunities, deprivation, education, and support. So, what we see in London, because of the you know the makeup of London, the social makeup of London, is we see this is- issue exacerbated. But I, I would also like to make the point that we should be cautious to not just put it simply down to. It, it being an issue of race. I do think there are many other circumstances which we must engage with and think about, like opportunities, background and, and deprivation. But for this study and this scheme in particular, it did it did zone in on that issue because of the nature of the boroughs that we were looking at. And, and John, moving to you on some of the potential problems with this, or at least what would be perceived as issues, what sort of pushback have you seen from people who may be sceptical of, of drug reform uh, schemes like this? Uh, do you think that there's there's kind of reasonable objections that politicians could look at this and, and see, or, or is it just a case of a kind of misinformation and bad reporting? I mean, the usual objection that I come across is based on crime associated with cannabis, like supply and use, right? I mean, our, our friends over at the CSJ are obviously pretty, pretty sceptical of this scheme. I know, Paul, you, you had a brief discussion with them online the other day. <laughs> <laughs> But it kind of comes from this place of I've seen, you know, what they perceive as having done to communities. And it's sort of a very, look, this is the effect of cannabis on communities. It is bad. It's a crime. It's associated with crime. 
we need to crack down on it. There's a much more moral element to it. And it's it's hard to argue against that sometimes because it's they feel very emotional about it. And to, to you know, to that I would say if you if you look at the evidence of of the way these schemes work, you'd probably have a more moral outcome if you, you know, if, if you kind of loosened up on the way you feel about it a bit. But to them, that just sounds like we're kind of being a bit Hippies. wishy-washy with it. All. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there, there's something about the, the kind of the, the intuitive sense made by the argument that, oh, if you stop um, arresting and, and prosecuting people for possession of small amounts of cannabis, then you're encouraging people to yeah cannabis. Yeah. Uh, and I think to most people, just hearing that in isolation as an argument, they're like, yeah, that, that seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah. I heard another argument, actually, which was that as you sort of open the door to legal cannabis, you end up kind of making things easier for the people who use it very heavily, which does have negative health consequences. And, and I mean, you do. that, 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 that and, you, and you do. And I, I think one of the challenges I've had in the space and engaging people in the space, and one of the reasons I've, you know, very early on in my career at VaultFast, I kind of gravitated to you guys, met you guys as an organization, started engaging with you, Taxpayers Alliance, Institute of Economic Affairs, is there are really sensible arguments to be made on the right around this that have just been missing. Too often mm. on the left, it's been almost, the, the harms have not been discussed about in enough detail, and we just kind of brushed over a lot of these things. You know, people, there's people on the left that will say, oh, you legalize it, doesn't have, you know, you don't get more people using it problematically. Well, statistically, you definitely do. You definitely <laughs> get more people doing it problematically. How, like, how you could argue otherwise is simply a lie. You, you're twisting the truth. But the discussion needs to move into what that harm looks like and recognizing that in a legal market, the harm is less. And, you know, the, the point that you made, Dan, around, yeah, okay, it might send some particular messages, but ultimately the police have more time to focus on some of those more serious things. So I think I think now that discussion is broadening out some more. And John, you re- referenced the sort of dialogue with the Centre for Social Justice. You know, Andy Cook, who made an attempt to, to, to criticise the scheme, ironically ended up supporting it because he thought it was a decriminalisation scheme. It's not, it's a diversion scheme. And he's kind of like, look, this is what we should be doing with the issue. His three recommendations are exact three recommendations that we've made in the report. More education, more family support, structured counselling. That's basically mm. exactly what the diversion scheme is. So I think once once proponents of this start to look into the detail and give themselves the opportunity, I think they find elements that they go, oh yeah, great. This is saving police time and we'll, we'll try to get people back into employment, education and a family unit. Brilliant. Centre-right framing. I think there's also a kind of double think when it comes to the idea that this would increase, say, uh, cannabis use by quite a significant amount because you tend to get opponents of, of drug reform argue that, well, the UK's laws are extremely lax uh, and if we just enforce them properly, then, then that would be the kind of appropriate way to deal with cannabis possession. But when it comes to this particular scheme and saying, well, you know, uh, it's going to massively uh, change incentives and, and encourage more people to use cannabis and funnel money into the, the hands of criminal gangs. And it's, well, you can't really have it both ways, right? If you don't think that the existing enforcement mechanisms really have much of an effect or a deterrent effect, which which they don't. I mean, you know, you compare the amount of cannabis arrests to reported uh, use over the past year, and it's less than, it's around 5%. And, you know, that's not even accounting for, say, uh, the multiple arrests for the same person. So it's likely even less than that in terms of how likely you are uh, to be caught. So that doesn't really work as a deterrent anyway, because, you know, you need, in order for a deterrent to be effective, you need it to be, uh, you know, you've got the classic frequency and severity of punishment. Severity is, is not a thing. Um, some people might argue it should be, but but it's not at the moment. Frequency is also not a thing. 
So you're not really changing the incentives that much. You're just encouraging those people who are caught in, in possession of small amounts of cannabis to, to actually have a decent chance of, of making sure that doesn't ruin their lives. Um, and ideally, you know, through some of these support schemes that were mentioned, Paul, looking at, at kind of how to protect yourself from exploitation uh, by, by gangs and stop that kind of slide into more more serious criminality. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that, that kind of frustrates me that there seems to be some double think going on there. But I think on that note, we should probably move on to the second section of today's podcast. And that is on the government's broader approach to drug laws uh, and their recently announced drug strategy. So I I wanted to broaden things out to sort of national uh, drug strategies. You know, in in the US, we've seen states like Oregon uh, move further towards drug liberalization. You know, we've been hearing noises from Germany about drug liberalization. But the UK government has sort of been been quite resolute in maintaining its current stance of combating drug use through criminal enforcement. I mean, in December of 2021, the Home Secretary and Minister for Policing set out a number of ways in which the government would uh, would do this, including stripping middle-class drug users of passports. Um, and so there's this sort of very forward-facing look, we're being very tough on this through some very bizarre measures seems to be a big part of, uh, of the government's current drug strategy. In terms of, of the passport thing, would you be able to tell us, Paul, if that would, what kind of effect that would even have? It's, it seems very uncanny to me. I found this so funny. So, so, so my take on the, the passport discussion was, so this drug strategy on the whole is fairly, I'd be maybe hesitant to call it fairly liberal, but it certainly, it certainly does a few things that I reckon the Tory base would not be over the moon about. Mm-hmm. i.e. it does put a lot of money back into treatment services that were previously taken away and put elsewhere it does talk quite heavily about schemes particularly around class a you know class a drug users like heroin users instead say maybe we shouldn't just keep arresting maybe we should start to look at something else ironically diversion schemes are mentioned it, oh, it's not it wasn't really that heavy on the punitive element but fascinatingly the thing that came out in the press was this discussion around passports being removed now, when you actually dig into the detail of the drug strategy and go, right, what is it saying about these passports? It's one line in there that simply says that we are going to look at a range of measures for tackling some is- the issues of middle-class cocaine use and others. Not just that, but, but, but yeah. one of several issues like middle-class cocaine use. And we're going to release a white paper sometime next year, which might include the possibility of serious sanctions such as withdrawal of, of passports and a few other things. So it's not actually all... The, this, this comes up in the drug strategy, not as a, a specific policy or an intervention. It just comes up in there as something, a, a recognition that they're going to release a, right, a white paper and that might be included. Now, all the press ran with that as a story. My take, and not, not, not going down a conspiratorial route here, I'm just going down a... To me, this looks like quite sharp, sensible PR from, from the Tory of, office is that that was obviously the leading line with the press because it's quite juicy, right? And, you know, yeah. loads of papers ran it. And I think that was quite a sensible, and I don't say sensible with encouragement. I say sensible as someone with, a, a you know, an interest in public relations, a sensible distraction from some of the more liberal measures. Now, you know, Priti Patel, I think, would see that and be quite pleased that the discussion was around that. It's an issue that she's brought out frequently. But it, it just to emphasize, it wasn't something that was actually in the strategy as an intervention or a policy. 
It's just going to be talked about in the white paper. So I think quite a smart distraction by the Tories away from some of the more liberal measures and their base will have seen that and gone, oh yeah, that's good. Cracking down, cracking down. That's what we need to do. It's those liberal elites in London that are taking all the cocaine. That are full. You know, the Labour say this as well. This isn't just a Tory mm. thing. I think that would have appeased the base rather than creating a sensible discussion debate. So it's kind of it was kind of frustrating, but slightly amusing that that got the headlines. This massively appeals to my my inner utilitarian, which I can now let roam free um, as our, our former co-host Matthew Lesh has moved to pastures new and, and can't call me out for my my terrible ethical views. Um, <laughs> but 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 I I completely agree that when it comes to the the kind of the conservative strategy on this, is basically let's wave a big you know, red flag at the media saying we're going to get tough, we're going to do all of these, like, frankly, insane measures. I mean, how is taking away someone's passport going to help them move away from uh, a cycle of, of problem drug use or, or not being able to find a job or anything? It's clearly ridiculous. Uh, but everyone zoomed in on that. And under the table, we got the, well, not under the table, they did you know, focus on this part as well. But we, we got the largest ever, I believe the largest ever increase in, in mm. drug treatment funding in the tune of around three quarters of, um, of a billion pounds, I believe, over, yeah, yeah. over a few years, um, which which is huge um, because it's something that in this space, the, the Labour Party especially have been, uh, as, as well as many others, have been taking the Tories to task for and saying, look, there, there just isn't enough treatment funding here. Uh, and you might talk about treatment uh, and recovery and, and abstinence as part of the uh, as part of your drug strategy, but it's no good without putting some money where your mouth is. Uh, and they did. Uh, and I've got to say that was uh, my my first reaction was very very similar to, uh, to to I guess what the the Conservatives might have wanted, which is oh no, they've got a bunch of massive punitive measures coming out and they're just being stupid as ever. Uh, and then looked into it and was like, hang on a second, we were seeing. We're seeing progress here, you know, and it, it's it's a similar sort of classic British progress on uh, on <laughs> this issue that we talked about when it comes to the diversion schemes. It's not going to come all in in one massive torrent. No one's going to click a switch and we'll have um, legal cannabis and MDMA tomorrow. But slowly and you know and painfully, I think it must be said, we're inching towards this more rational, sensible, evidence based approach to to our drug policy. We're not there yet, of course, and we're very far away, but it's it's cause, I think, for, for optimism in this space. Well, I wanted to sort of tack back to this this headline issue, though, because mm. earlier you were saying it was frustrating that, that the way that the um, the diversion scheme was reported in the media was was sort of, sort of pretty disingenuous, and that the way the government's new new measures were announced, you know, that the passport thing was the top line issue. Do you think that announcing things in this way and sort of sensationalizing the drug debate kind of precludes big reforms in that, you know, it's always like we're trying to sneak through good stuff, you know, very piecemeal rather than kind of being able to move the conversation forward? I do find it deeply frustrating. I, I think in some ways it helps. So as much as as much as the decriminalisation headline frustrated me because it was a long, it was quite a long way from the reality of what was being proposed. In some ways, on quite like a macro level, it's quite good because people just mm. see that Instagram post from Lad Bible and they think, "Oh right, we're getting more progressive, we're getting more liberal," I'm, and they just naturally soften to the issue without even thinking about it in a great deal of detail. They're just like, oh, "Okay, cool, yeah, stuff's happening," and they don't need to see that it's actually a diversion scheme. They just need to get that Instagram post or whatever that headline and recognize that things are moving forward, even though it's probably a little bit further than than the reality. So, in some ways, it 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 helps on like a broader 
social issue of just awareness. And I've always said that the global reforms that are taking place, which I'm sure we'll touch on, they're just great as well because the optics of that, the UK society, UK society recognising that these changes are happening, happening globally is great because people just recognise that it's not so much of a controversial issue. It does frustrate me greatly because, and particularly, particularly issues like this where there will be a lot of Tory voters who see the vaccine passport headline and think, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, we are being tough. And they're just not. They're, 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 mm. you know, they're, they are increasing money for vulnerable groups. And I mean, they took that money out in the first place, but whatever. They're putting it back in and recognising that there are groups we need to look after. And it's not really fair. I don't really think it's very fair that the Tory voting demographic doesn't engage with that because I think if no. I think if they just ran with that and said you know what we're recognizing that the overcriminalization of vulnerable groups is wasting police time and we want your local police to be focusing on the real issues that are affecting you Tory voters would see that and go good I yeah. like that that's positive but because there's this hesitancy around framing it like that they think oh we don't want to be seen as soft and you've got Pretty Patel who's who's pretty hardline on most of these issues um they get this mis unfair misrepresentation of what the policy really is and that goes back to my comment earlier but you know when you sit down in front of an mp they'll say this is i actually agree with you it's just not a top five issue but it would be great if the, the voting demographic kind of heard that as well and didn't have this i guess perception that the tories are anti everything when it comes to drug reform yeah. it's just not the case there's a, a concept in in immigration, the open borders debate, uh, called keyhole solutions, and it applies to other areas of, of policy as well. And the idea is, well, you might take, say, a very unpopular policy uh, like open borders or a move towards that, uh, and you make it palatable by you know addressing people's specific concerns in a kind of in a targeted way. So let's say people are worried that oh, uh, the migrants will uh, have a huge pressure on the state welfare system there, okay, we'll have open borders, but we won't give migrants access to the welfare state for four or five years or something like that. Now, clearly, in, in a lot of ways, that's going to cause harm, right? Or that's going to that's going to make uh, the lives of those migrants far more difficult, especially they can't access in work benefits. But the net result is, is, is good compared to where we were before. And I feel as though that there's a similar argument that is, is kind of being hinted at here when it comes to drug policy. So let's say for the sake of argument that actually the white paper on drug strategy, the government do decide to take away a very small number of uh, quote unquote middle class drug users passports uh, if they're caught with possession. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that's clearly to me uh, an insane, um, deeply immoral uh, and counterproductive idea to everything that, that would be attempted to be accomplished with that measure. But uh, if that's what it takes to, to kind of legitimise at say the, the increase in funding or some some more moves towards diversion schemes or broader reform, uh, then I think intuitively I would be not comfortable with it, but I'd accept it as a necessary political trade-off. But I guess I, what I'm interested in from you, Paul, is do you think that that actually, that trade-off exists? Do you think we need to be kind of at the same time as uh, bringing forward positive reforms, giving those kind of little morsels of uh, of criminal justice, punitive nonsense to, to people just to get it through? Or actually, is that not really a trade-off we, we need to make? That's a great question. That's a super question. And I, I personally feel as though it is worth the trade-off because mm. I recognise the challenges that exist when pushing forward a, a strong moral issue like the use of substances. You know, we have to accept that 
as a policy, drug, drug reform is very, very moral. It's not like cycling reform or, or other areas that you guys might work in. There's I a have strong... very strong moral views on cycling. No, I know you hate all cyclists. But I guess the point I'm making is the, mor- the morality of the issue does take it into quite a unique place, which mm. is not occupied by a great deal of policy discussions and because of that we should park our ideology at the door and be practical and one of the biggest discussions and debates i've had over the past few years is criticism from other people that exist in the space for not being as forward in going no we should we should decriminalize legalize all substances let's go mm. let you know let, let's do and suggesting these policy solutions that from an evidence-based perspective yeah we'll sure reduce harm but just in practical and fall on deaf ears you have to deal with the hand that you've got and you have to deal with the society that we exist with here in the uk it's it's classically conservative you know we can't pretend that we can just push through liberal reforms left right and center and suggest them to politicians and i think sometimes you do have to like you know you look at the canadian model me and you've talked at length about the canadian model dan i'm not a massive fan of of its marketing restrictions i don't think Mm. it's great for the consumer i think it's quite restrictive but is it better than is it better than it was previously yes so you have to take a few hits and go yeah do you know what fine let's hammer down on the marketing you you, look you're still going to have an illicit market but whatever that just to get this over the line we're going to have to accept that's the case i think you have to make compromise there and i think also you have to recognize that particularly under center-right governments they're going to have to clamp down particularly strongly on some issues to allow others to go canada was a good example they really increased their punishments for selling to kids it went up massively they were like right if if adults sell cannabis to kids we're going to like 25 years minimum they really pushed it up but that was just because they needed public support for the legalization Mm. of the drug and a lot of advocates said that's disgraceful you shouldn't do that but you just have to be practical and deal with the hand that you've got. And unfortunately, that means that, yeah, you do have to make those compromises. And I personally would be comfortable with that. I mean, it's not ideal, but, for, you know, for the greater good and recognising the bigger picture. It's like, look, all right, all we need to do is like hang three, yeah, um, right. you know, <laughs> low-level yeah. drug dealers and then yeah. we can legalise cash. Yeah, it's like, a, like a, ritual, a ritual sacrifice, right? <laughs> we just bring, bring back, yeah, bring back capital punishment. I'm sure we'll get ketamine. Yeah, so realistic <laughs> policy solutions, is is that how it works i guess because the more extreme the sacrifice you make the more you get in return right so it's kind of like the aztec theory of uh, drug policy reform if we we just sacrifice (laughs) if we hang all the pedos we can legalize all the drugs we should do a joint paper on this (laughs) oh god well on that note uh i wanted to pass back over to you dan um and sort of finish up by talking about these recent stories of, of international drug reform developments uh, in, in Germany, Luxembourg, uh, etc. So I think in order to fully understand some of the impacts that various drug law reforms would have in the UK, uh, as well as the kind of the more international situation and how that might affect uh, the UK in their perception of what's normal in drug policy at the moment, it's probably useful to look at what's going on in other countries, both in Europe and further afield around the world. Uh, and I think just just quickly to start off on, on the kind of the classic example uh, of significant drug policy reform in Europe, and that is, of course, Portugal, uh, which decriminalised all drugs uh, around two decades ago, or is now, so it's been going for, for quite some time. Um, what were the actual results of that? What happened? Um, did it go well? I think, you know, I'm kind of, the way I've introduced this section suggests the answer pretty clearly. But Paul, when it comes to Portugal, what are the kind of key outcomes that, that you saw? It, w- it went really well. 
What's interesting about Portugal, it was a left-wing government for a long time. They had the highest level of heroin deaths in Europe. Terrible, terrible outcomes in terms of their drug-related deaths. And the government just didn't know what to do. They tried everything, hadn't worked. Tried more punishments, more criminalisation, not worked. And it was actually a centre-right government that said, you know what, we need to do something different. We need to put more money into treatment services. We need to put more money into social services so we can better support vulnerable groups. But fundamentally, we need to stop arresting the same groups over and over and over again. So they decriminalised drugs for personal possession. What that means is that it is still illegal to carry a drug and you still get a criminal intervention if you're in possession of a drug. It's just similar to the diversion scheme we've talked about previously in that you don't get a criminal footprint. You're given an opportunity to engage in a support service. If you say no, you still get criminal intervention. So what's important here is to recognize that it wasn't just decriminalization. They put lots and lots and lots of money in. And sometimes it's misrepresented and people say decriminalization led to this, this and this. Well, it certainly helped. Like, the, you know, stopping criminalizing people helped massively. But you put lots of money into treatment services, you put lots of money into social services, and now they are way, way, way down the list in terms of drug overdoses and heroin-related deaths. They're doing great. They're one of the leaders in Europe for this. Now, that is certainly a positive. Really, really good. Not harming people. Providing support is great. But I guess the, the, the nuance to this and the thing that I think is interesting is this is great for gangs. Mm. It's, it's amazing. And if you go to Lisbon and you go on the main square in Lisbon, people just come up to you and just offer you, offer you drugs, offer you, offer you coke, offer you cannabis. It's amazing for them. And they'll carry the bare minimum. There's a massive ease of access in, in Portugal. And, and mm. again, I just want to emphasize that that system is obviously better than what we have here. If your focus is on protecting vulnerable groups better and reducing criminalization, saving police time, very, very good. But for me, the interesting thing about Portugal and my fear for drug reform globally is that governments don't go far enough and kind of fall upon mm. this. Oh, we'll just decriminalise. You know, that's that's better than what that's what you guys wanted. Right? That's what you've been lobbying for. You wanted drug policy change. There you go. You've got it. It fails to address decriminalisation on its own. Fails to address the the market remains solely in the hands of criminal gangs. And in many ways, you know, I'd almost Centre for Social Justice have been nodding their heads at this. In many ways, just further empowers criminal gangs and just mm. allows them to kind of use i mean they're powerful anyway in the current system and making loads of money but if you can just load runners up you know young runners with the exact amount that they're allowed to carry on them and not get criminalized you know the supply is not really getting heavily dis heavily disrupted they're just going for that intervention so there is an interesting discussion around but really really good outcomes from portugal if your focus is is on protecting people and reducing drug related deaths and harms it's a big win portugal's a big win but if you're looking at drug policy more generally and kind of more of a zoomed out approach there are some interesting questions around the need to go further particularly around cannabis particularly around that as a drug that we're seeing global models you know markets pop up left right and center mm. yeah i i think i spoke well to the kind of problem with decriminalization or that doesn't go far enough, the leaving the supply side of the market entirely in unregulated hands. And I think, to be fair, when it comes to Portugal, there is a case that, oh, there's police time being diverted more towards policing the supply side. Now, obviously, that's not great if you think that police enforcement is pretty ineffective um, and sometimes very counterproductive when it comes to in enforcement on the supply side of the illicit drug market. But you know, just to, to kind of put that out there, I think it's important to remember as well. Was it Holland that has the sort of coffee shop system, but then obviously the supply side of things is still illegal. So you have this bizarre situation in which they have to illegally supply themselves with cannabis from the Netherlands, but they can sell it in shops. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's not legal, it's just decriminalized. It's, it's absurd. Yeah. 
It's, it's a ridiculous situation. I mean, in Holland, they're doing a, a trial at the moment where they're creating legal supply chains and legal supply routes. And they did a tender process where companies could apply to, to cultivate oh. and supply. So they, they do have a trial going on at the moment. It's quite a long trial. It's quite slow moving. But it, I've, I've always found Holland a very interesting case study because people's perception is, oh, cannabis is legal there. They're really chilled out about it. Well, not so much. Still illicit. And it's still illegal to get it into the shop and to grow it. It just... By the time it's in the shop, you can buy it and consume it. So yeah, Holland's a bit of a, a bit of a strange one. Well, not too far away from Holland, of course, we have Germany, and there was a lot of uh, the recent elections in Germany, a lot of kind of optimism, I think, about what that new coalition government might do when it came to to cannabis law reform. I know Voltfass uh, did some some great coverage of those German elections, some great kind of explainer articles, what exactly was at stake, which party had which stance, etc. All the possible outcomes, but fast forward uh, several months down the line, and I think it's fair to say we haven't actually seen anything concrete uh, when it comes to Germany. So, what's going on there, Paul? Is this just a case of COVID delaying policy making, as we've seen in the UK, or are we starting to get a little bit nervous now that actually the the promised uh, German cannabis legalization might not take place, or not at least for some time? Well, the, the, I mean, it's, it's hard to say because of those factors that you mentioned, i.e. particularly COVID dominating the policy space and the new space. But there's absolutely an intention there for them to create an adult, an adult recreational market. That's on the agenda. That's going to go through. Timescales and details are yet to be thrashed out. What is likely and kind of the murmurings of it generally from a policy perspective is that it will be fairly sensible regulation. I wouldn't be surprised if it's something akin to Canada. You know, you would kind of see sensible, low-level marketing, quite heavy restrictions, maybe some potency restrictions, I would I would imagine, fairly conservative, but also an open market which people can access if, if they're an adult. So the details are yet to be released. There's certainly a lot of positivity around it. It's not an issue that is particularly controversial in Germany. They have a very big medical market that's been doing really well in, in Europe for years. So it's not an issue that they're particularly stressed out about socially. I think public support for it is high. It's certainly on the agenda. The, the proof will be in the, the pudding in terms of the details, but I think ideologically as a country, I would expect them to follow something similar to Canada. What I don't think we'll see, and what I, I would be strongly against, would be some kind of model similar to Malta, which is like mm. this sort of like, we're legalizing cannabis, but we don't want it commercialized. You can just grow some at home. Even though I'm pro-home, I think it's, I think people should be like to grow at home. I'm pro that policy. But I don't think that provides a solution to the challenges that we're experiencing with current drug policy. So I, I would I would very likely that it's going to be sensibly regulated and sold for adults. The details should come out sooner rather than later. But obviously, as you mentioned, there are a number of factors that might be kicking it down a little bit. But it's great news for Europe. It's massive, massive news for Europe. It's great for the UK. It's great for all those surrounding countries where there's already medical markets, simply because how are they going to prevent people driving into Germany, legally procuring cannabis, and then going back to their own country to another state? Like It's it's so, so difficult to enforce, as we've seen in America. Mm. And one of the major region, reasons for that rollout of legal cannabis markets in, in the States is because the ease of access is so high. You can just drive into another state, buy it, bring it back. That becomes this like, well, we may as well just legalize it because access is so high. That's great news for Europe. And I'm really hopeful that Germany leading the way, creating a sensible adult use market will then lead to nearby countries and states 
uh, doing a similar thing. Yeah, thank goodness that Germany borders so many European countries. Uh, you, you mentioned when it came to Portugal, the kind of the centre-right government being the, the driving force behind the decriminalisation reform in the early 2000s. Uh, and it's not quite the same in, in Germany, but it did interest me that the, the coalition that that brought this was, yes, the Social Democratic Party and the Greens, but also the FDP, the kind of centre-right um I wouldn't necessarily say classical liberal, but certainly classical liberal aligned uh, group in Germany. Um, and they all were, were happy to kind of have this on their platform. And, you know, obviously the kind of risk that you run with that is that there will be less sensible regulation because it tends to be, unfortunately, that, that those on the left in the drug policy reform debate will, will gravitate towards uh, more kind of use of, of regulation or, or higher taxation and things like that not not just that this isn't just a problem in kind of you know, purely ideological terms it's a very practical problem of if you overtax cannabis or if you make it very hard to, to open a dispensary or you ban selling online then you're going to reduce access to the legal market you're going to reduce the ability of that legal market to outcompete the illicit market so that there are kind of practical issues here as well um, and on, on the kind of the cannabis tourism point specifically I know we spoke about this in the the first section a little bit, um, but previous kind of diversion style schemes in London, there was one that was tried in Lambeth in the, the early 2000s as well, a cannabis warning scheme, or the, the Lambeth Cannabis Warning Scheme, I think it was called. There was a, a quite a rigorous um, academic evaluation of that that was done uh, a few years later, I believe. And one of the things that the authors of that pointed out was you know, a lot of the, the kind of results of that evaluation were biased because Lambeth became a kind of, uh, cannabis tourism destination in within London, right? Uh, you, you know, people would go there and know that the, the enforcement wasn't quite as um, uh, as intense, certainly as it was in the rest of London. Um, and my my concern, I think, when it comes to I know this is going back to the first section, but it just reminded me. My, my concern is that when it comes to these kind of trial schemes, some of the benefit can be distilled away from that cannabis tourism factor. I, I certainly think that can be the case. You kind of seen it. In Durham as well, Do you remember Durham have had a really, really liberal policy with regards to cannabis, and you can yeah. see, you know, there's, there's been discussions there that have existed for a while, and people kind of gravitate into that area, whether it be to live there or hang out there or, or you know, go out for the day to use um, cannabis because they know that the, I guess, the punitive restrictions are, are far, far less so. So yeah, but I guess that calls for. I mean, it, the thing is with these diversion schemes and trials, it's got to start somewhere and there is certainly mm-hmm. going to be. So so I had a political character call me yesterday to get more information and talk about the scheme and they kind of made the point of why why were they doing this in like three boroughs? Why is this why why can't we just do this in more boroughs? And um, who gets to pick these boroughs? So that's a bit of a postcode lottery, isn't it? That like mm-hmm. some kids from some backgrounds will not re- receive a criminal intervention whereas, you know, 20 minutes down the road someone else will like that doesn't seem very fair and you're right it's not it's not very fair and, and there are issues of it but it goes back to the discussion we had previously of like well it's a starting point and unfortunately it's very difficult to get policymakers to adopt large spread changes overnight you know it's kind of like that piecemeal approach and and got to start got mm. to start somewhere but ironically i i hope the reverse happens for you i i kind of want this tourism for germany i think it would be great if germany bring in these this legislation and then loads of people go there to use the market and again the optics of that are amazing for the rest of europe and if if, if you're a, if you're a nearby if you're a bordering country and you're losing millions and millions of pounds every year for, you know of your your citizens who are going across the border and smoking loads of or not smoking vaping ideally or using edibles you know 
consuming loads of cannabis. I think that's where policymakers go, well, hang on, why don't we just do something about that here? We're losing millions yeah. of pounds. We can Germany get on this. <laughs> yeah, this is crazy. Loads of people are going over there. And, and I think I think that 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 will be really powerful and, and really interesting. And it will it will help make those arguments to the centre-right. But yeah, cannabis, cannabis legalisation is a centre-right issue. I said this for a while. I've said this when I've done talks with you guys in, in previous years. You know, the centre-right needs to engage in cannabis reform because it's a centre-right issue. If you look at the moral principles of the right, there are loads of areas that cannabis reform ticks boxes. Whereas on the left, they just don't want to see people hurt and they just don't want, you know, they don't want to see people oppressed. But outside of that, they're not really bothered. You speak to left-wing people about cannabis reform. They're like, I just don't want to see people criminalized. I'm not really bothered if we go at home or if the government sell it or whatever. I just don't want to see people criminalized. Okay, speak to people on the right. They're like, well, I don't want to see people criminalized, but it'd be great to have some innovation and jobs and economic opportunities here. That would mm. be cool. It would be great to save police time and allow them to focus on more serious things. That, I'd, I'd be interested in that. So, so all of a sudden, when you take this issue over to the right, you find that there's loads of things to discuss and engage on. There are loads of really interesting debates and discussions to have that are missing on the left. And that's always been my fear of the centre-right not properly engaging with this and being lazy on it, because I think there's huge potential and huge opportunity. And there are, there are multiple examples now of centre-right governments really getting to grips with this issue and putting forward some interesting proposals. And, and let, you know, going, again, going even further back in this discussion, I have strong concerns around labour engaging with this you know Keir Starmer is not engaging with this issue appropriately or positively in, in any way and I think that party there's some great advocates for drug reform amongst the left and you know many really fantastic politicians Jeff Smith you know all the, all the characters that are involved in the Labour campaign for drug policy reform brilliant but outside of that there's a little bit of a laziness when it comes to recognizing the opportunities that exist with with reform particularly from an economic and social perspective just from my perspective we've been talking about the debate within the labor party i think one of the issues that i find when talking to conservatives is is, is that differential between the sort of more free market inclined and the more kind of traditional conservatives is when we talk about legalization the other side this more traditional side comes at it with well you're just trying to profit of something that makes people miserable and harms communities. And so I think that debate within the centre-right will be will be quite prevalent yeah. if we move yeah. further towards that. The economic arguments that you mentioned, Paul, I think are compelling and especially compelling to a certain subset of people on the centre-right. But I think John, John makes an absolutely correct point that you can't kind of you can't focus on that too much or certainly not exclusively when engaging with, with people that, that come at this from, you know, more conservative background because, yeah, yeah you get painted as, oh, you're just that, that crazy hippie libertarian that wants to profit off people's misery, which is like, well, no, I mean, we want to profit off something that is going to significantly reduce people's misery. Uh, and actually... Mm -hmm. Profit is not a bad thing. <laughs> but I always put that back. Well, who do you want to profit? Because at the yeah. moment, it's at the moment it's gangs and they're exploiting kids. And, and, and do you know what I mean? Like international drug trafficking is a problem and exploitation of young people in amongst that is a problem. It yeah. comes down to that awkward conversation of like, well, yeah, we, I, 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 do, I do want to profit. I want us to profit. I want corporations to sensibly profit. I want governments to benefit. But I just really don't like the current system where gangs are profiting. That feels bad. Do you know what I mean? So I think you can have. I think you can turn that on its head a little bit with those social conservatives and kind of put oh, it definitely. back to them. You know, where where would you like the money to go? Because I, I think the interesting thing about drug policy is we're getting to that point now where people, even social conservatives, Andy Cook's article is a great example of this. They're all getting to the point, Peter Hitchens included, where they're realizing that it's just not working. It's just not working. It's just that you know they're sick of this. They, they they will always come back to this line of you know we're not doing enough to police it. We're not doing enough, and I think that line they've said so much now realizing oh do you know what I don't think we can police our way out of it. 
Mm. I don't think we can do it. You know, Peter Hitchin said, you know, we should increase the resources of the police until they can effectively stamp out the cannabis market. Well, I mean, that's a lot of money. You're going to need a lot of police. You, you know, you're going to need a police state the likes of which we've never seen. You're going to need Big Brother-style police state to truly stamp it out. And I think they're getting to that point of like, okay, something's going to have to change. It's just about, I think the discussion and the debate comes into like, well, how much will you, a bit like the debate that exists amongst gambling and alcohol, you know, how much will you allow people to profit in recognition that this can be harmful? And there needs to be an honest discussion there because cannabis can be harmful. Cannabis can be a dangerous drug. I spent nine years working in drug treatment. I've seen tons of people who smoke too much cannabis and it wrecked their life. But we've got it. We, 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 we've, as reformers, we have to put that on the table at the beginning of the discussion and say, that's why we're having the chat because it's dangerous and we need to do something about it. The groups that pretend it's not dangerous, oh, no, it's fine. It doesn't have any problems. You're over-egging it. If you start the discussion with that, it's going to go. It's going to go nowhere. Oh, I'm sure, Paul, and and we include ourselves in this. We've all got plans for how exactly we are going to advance that discussion in 2022, uh, and with a certain amount of optimism, I think, going into it based on what we've discussed in today's podcast. But I think on that note, it's probably time to end for today. Uh, thank you very much for listening to the Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. I've been Daniel Pryor, the head of research at the Adam Smith Institute, and I've been joined by my wonderful and very capable colleague, John McDonald, our Director of Strategy, as well as our special guest for today, Paul North, the Director of VoltFast, the Drug Policy Advocacy Organization. If you like what you've heard, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider, and we will see you next week for even more Bats for Analysis.